0: Okay, we're going to start today looking at the first model. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> I can't say anything self-incriminating. <laughs> okay, so let me uh, let me open us up with prayer, and uh, then we can we can start up our time together this morning. Let's pray. Father, today we um confess our need for your help and your your mercy to us we confess our own sin and rebellion against you that despite your salvation and your faithfulness and your love for for us we still pursue other gods lesser gods gods that really can never offer and give us what they what they promise but you can do that you give exactly what you promise you give us life and uh, satisfaction and hope and joy and peace and so we ask for you to give us that today please as we meet together as your people to worship you. And we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to um, do some classes on spiritual formation. We pray for our our little ones and our students and ask for your grace on them as they read the Bible and are taught God's Word. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, give them a love for it and a love for you. We pray for our time, that you would continue to form us as um, people who are seeking to be salt and light in the world and who are seeking to obey your commands, to subdue the earth and uh, have dominion over it and care for and tend this world you've given us. And so we, we pray that our time together this morning would be helpful and fruitful in that for those purposes and those ends, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we started by kind of an overview. We talked about... Um, what culture is. So I I, I tried to kind of last week just define terms. What is culture and what do we mean when we talk about engagement? And I talked about how we're going to look at three different models for that have historically and especially in the last 50 or so years been relatively prominent as to how Christians should think about cultural engagement. So I gave kind of a four-pronged definition of culture last week. If you were here last week, does anybody remember any of those four prongs? What is what four things make up culture? You didn't expect a pop quiz, but Arts was one of them. yeah, Art, artifacts and the, culture is the things that we make. That was one. Yep. Anything institutions else? And power. Yeah, power institutions. So things like Hollywood, Apple, Washington D.C., New York City. Yep. Police values. Worldview. Values, and there was one other one. Yes, Charles Taylor's term, the social imaginary, which are the things that we assume to be true so clearly that to deny such a thing is viewed as absurd in our world. So, one example of a social imaginary is that individual freedom is the highest good. Uh, so, we thought about some of those last week. So, when you combine those four things into the melting pot, what you get is culture. We also looked at engagement. What does it mean for Christians to engage culture? And that's what we're going to start talking about. We're going to look at three different models for how Christians have answered that. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a definition of the model each week. And then I want to kind of just talk about examples of the model, emphases of the model, strengths and weaknesses in my, probably not as humble as it should be, opinion. And then... um, remember there's two big questions that each of these models' answers. The first question is, should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the possibility of cultural change? That is, Christians impacting culture for the good. The second question is, is the current culture fundamentally redeemable and good, or is it fundamentally fallen? Each of these models provides an answer to those two questions. So again, my goal here is to lay out the ideas for you, the concepts for you, not necessarily to make value judgments, although I am going to give what I think are strengths and weaknesses of all three models. The three models are the transformationist model, which we're looking at today, the counterculturist, countercultural model, which we'll look at next week, and then the two kingdoms model, which we'll look at at in two weeks. So uh, if you don't have an outline, are there any outlines left? Does anybody else need an outline? Just pass them to people that need them if you, if you can. <clears throat> so a look at your outline. Today I want to think about what is called the transformation or transformationalist model. And you'll notice there are a quote, a quote at the very top from Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch, 19th century Dutch theologian and statesman and politician. This is his most famous quote that summarizes this model. Kuiper wrote, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ does not claim mine. So, let's talk about the transformationists. Here's Tim Keller's definition. Come on in, guys. Transformationists. The transformationist model, if you're three minutes late, you get the front row. Congratulations. I know Lorena wants it. Victor, I don't know. The transformationist model, to quote Tim Keller, engages culture... Largely through an emphasis on Christians pursuing their vocations, their jobs, from a Christian worldview, and thereby changing culture. So the transformationists want to transform. They want to transform culture through Christians being engaged in the world, in the various spheres of influence in which God has placed them. So that immediately tells you something about this model, right? This model would be more optimistic than pessimistic regarding our first of the two key critical questions. Is it possible for Christians to have an influence and to make positive changes in culture? Transformationists, by and large, say yes. Yes, that is possible. So transformationists uh, believe that the kingdom of Jesus, the reign of Christ, should be brought to bear on every part of life. Abraham Kuyper is most famous for his idea of what he called sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty. He says that our world is made up of various spheres of power and influence. So one example of a sphere would be the sphere of politics. Another example would be the sphere of family. Another example would be the sphere of the church. Kuiper argued that Christians acting as salt of the earth and the light of the world should engage as Christians Distinctively in every single sphere. That's the point of that quote. There's not one single part of creation that Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. Right? Does that make sense? So, two key things that the transformationists believe is that Christians should live and work distinctively as Christians in whatever sphere of influence you have been placed. So, if you're here and you're a mom, transformationalists would say, there is a Christian way to be a mom. And you living as a Christian mom is having cultural influence. If you're here and you're a teacher, there is a particularly Christian way. Your worldview as a Christian, your beliefs as a Christian should inform the way by which you teach. If you're here and you're a plumber, there's a Christian way to be a plumber. That's a sphere over which Jesus Christ has lordship. He rules over all parts of the world. And so Jesus' people, transformationists say, Should bring Christ's reign to bear over every area of life whether that's economics and business whether that's government and politics whether that's literature and art whether that's journalism and the media science law education and so they assume then that Christians should be laboring and working in all these distinct parts of our world distinctively as Christians does that make sense so a transformation that says, hey, if God calls you to be a professor, or if God calls you to be an Air Force pilot, or if God calls you to, be, um, to work for CPS, or if God calls you to be a student, go do what he's called you to do with uh, the intent of doing that in a distinctly Christian, God-honoring way. And as you do that, you will have a cultural impact, okay? So one distinction... To define the transformationist is that they're, they're called, they think Christians should be out in the world working distinctively as Christians. Another distinction, very importantly, is that they believe that Christians should articulate their way of thinking and living in the course of their interaction with non-Christians. Does that make sense? So you go do what God's called you to do in whatever sphere of influence he wants you to be in and do it around non-Christian people. Do it around non-Christian people in the world. Interact with them, and understand that we share with non-believers certain Christ- certain practices and institutions. There's quote common ground. Okay, there's common ground that both believers and non-believers share with one another and participate in together. And as such, Christians should know that. And work towards modeling the reign and rule of Jesus in the world. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Just kind of defining the idea. Yes, Brooklyn? What
1: exactly do you mean by common ground?
0: Yeah, by common ground, I mean they are saying Christians should not, they're not going to isolate themselves off from the world entirely. There's a lot of areas of life that both non Christians and Christians work together in and often actually would agree about topics on. Does that make sense? So an example is politics or education. A transformationist would say, there's going to be non-Christian people that might agree with you on a particular issue of politics, and it would be a good thing for you to go and partner with and work with that non-Christian for the sake of the, quote, common good, to make this world a better place. And as you're doing that as a Christian, you're witnessing to the reign of Jesus and making a positive impact in the world good question Brooklyn okay uh, a couple other thoughts here the transformationist model this is really important is made up of a really diverse group of people (laughs) there's all kinds of different types of transformationists in fact it's by far the three views we're gonna look at the most diverse very strange bedfellows the the transformationist model contains and um, so there's a lot of difference. The, if The big assumptions are transformationist believe Christians should be out there in the various spheres of influence trying to bring the reign of Christ into the world as salt and light. That's the basic idea. How that happens and what should be emphasized is very different. So the, the two main movements that could be labeled as transformationists differ pretty significantly from one another, okay? So there's, on the one hand, the religious right uh, the moral majority, which is what it was known in the in the 80s when it was being built up. Most of us are probably familiar with the religious right. Uh, if you're not, this is a group of people who in the last 30 or 40 years have risen to some prominence in American culture, and they want to change culture primarily through what vehicle? Anybody know? Uh, through politics. So they would say the most significant way of changing culture, of transforming culture, is through the, the, uh, the, the sphere of politics and issues-based activism. Uh, can anybody think of an example? Who would be someone that would fall into this category as far as Christian thinkers go? Jerry Falwell, the first one. My okay, yeah, Jerry Falwell, that's undoubtedly true. Yep. James Dobson, another big example. The early architects of this movement were like your Francis Schaeffer, your Chuck Colson's, James Dobson rose to significant prominence later on. Um, In some ways, the presidency of George W. Bush was kind of the the crowning achievement of the transformationist model, uh, as far as the religious right goes. So the religious right is a group that still has some prominence in America, but probably less than it did even 10 years ago. But they would be transformationists but the way their transformationism shows itself is through attaining political power via a voting bloc and in our culture that has been through the the, the conservative republican political establishment does that make sense? so we'll talk more about that in a minute and all the things I hate about it and some of the good things about it that's one of the groups, another group is what are known as, this is going to be less familiar the neo or new, the neo-Calvinists that might be a term that confuses you. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of another one that would be less confusing. This is what they're called, the neo-Calvinists. That basically means if you're Dutch, <laughs> if, you're from, if, you're, if you're Dutch and if you live in Michigan, you're a neo-Calvinist. <laughs> you ever been to Grand Rapids, Michigan? It's like neo-Calvinist Mecca. So uh, the neo-Calvinists want to change culture and transform the world, but not primarily through politics, but rather through what means. Anybody know? I want to take a guess education, through education. And so very significant neo-Calvinistic institutions would be all kinds of Christian colleges like Calvin College, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Dort College, Christianity Today, the publication is a probably the most prominent, at least historically, it's a neo-Calvinist institution, periodical. Um, Abraham Kuyper, the guy I referenced earlier, Fuller Seminary, Richard Maul, who is the president of Fuller Seminary, these kinds of guys, those names might be unfamiliar to you, that's okay, uh, you're learning things here this morning, um, represent the, the neo-Calvinistic movement in America. And so neo-Calvinists are also transformationists, they, they are heirs to Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch statesman and theologian, he was actually the prime minister of the Netherlands, and also the president of the most imp- important seminary in the Netherlands, so... They would also say Christians should be salt and light out there in the world, engaging with non-Christians, but living with the distinctive Christian world and life view. So there's the religious right, and then there's the neo-Calvinists, who are both very, very, very different from one another. And they're specifically different from one another um, in their politics. Okay, The religious right leans conservative. They emphasize social values, low taxes, strong borders, strong military. They're Christians. The neo-Calvinists are also Christians. Some of you might be surprised by this. Who are left of center politically. They emphasize, you know, biblical principles of justice and would argue that progressive taxation, labor unions, etc. a strong centralized economy, that those things are justifiable, Applications of biblical principles of justice. So there's significant difference in their political outlook. Both groups are Christians. Both groups believe in the authority of the Bible. Both groups want to transform culture. <clears throat> but there's significant difference in their politics. And there's also significant differences in the way they apply theology. The religious right um, has a strong view of, uh, remember our creation, fall, redemption, consummation, a strong view of the fall. Uh, That is, they would say non-Christians have very little to offer as far as helpful God-honoring policies, um, principles, etc. Whereas the the neo-Calvinists would say that there's much more common grace available in the world. And they have a higher view of what we call general revelation. In other words, neo-Calvinists would say non-Christian people, non-Christian educators non-Christian politicians, non-Christian filmmakers, non-Christian musicians can get a lot of things right, can honor God despite their own beliefs in a lot of ways because they're made in God's image and there's, quote, common grace not saving grace, but just because they're image bearers and the law of God's written on their hearts, there's a lot of things that we can agree with them on even if they're not Christians. Does that make sense? So neo-Calvinists would be much more okay with that then the religious right is okay with that. Does that make sense? Okay, so those are two, probably the two most prominent examples in our world, of um, in our culture of transformationists. Uh, Let me just quote again Tim Keller. I think he helps what I was just trying to say. Here's what Keller says. While neo-Calvinists believe there is a distinctively Christian way to carry out our cultural activity, they believe non-Christians can intuitively discern much—not all, but much—of how God wants humans to live in culture. So, neo one, you know, a lot of transformationists really love the idea of Christians being engaged, specifically in the world of the arts. So, um, film, filmmaking. Terrence Malick. Who knows Terrence Malick? Terrence Malick is a Christian filmmaker. He's made *The Tree of Life*. It's probably his most famous movie. None of y'all? It's a great movie. Not many transformationalists in here. Um, they would say, this is a great thing. We've got, like, world-class filmmaker who's making films in, a, you know, a non-Christian film studio. It's being played in theaters all over the place. It's being well-received. But this guy's a Christian. And it's not like, you know, Chronicles of Narnia movie. It's not a distinct analogy. It's a well-done film that has Christian themes. Other, you know, there's all kinds of musicians that would fit the bill here, too. Uh, I think of Sufjan Stevens because I like indie rock music. If you know Sufjan Stevens, independent musician, based in New York City, doesn't sing, quote, Christian music, but if you listen to him, he's very much in line with, you know, he's thinking through the gospel in his songwriting most of the time. So, great, take that with a grain of salt. Some of you have learned my recommendations should not always be followed when it comes to culture. Um, Then there's also just, you know, a lot of churches that are more transformationist in their viewpoint. You can see this in their mission statement. Like Keller is for sure a transformationist. The Redeemer Presbyterian Church mission statement is renewing the city spiritually, socially, and culturally. Does that make sense? You detect there a transformationist frame. They're not just saying we want people to grow spiritually. They're saying we want to renew the city socially and culturally. That's always kind of a, a giveaway towards a transformationist leaning. Okay, so that's a definition of what the transformationists think. Any questions? Comments? Snide remarks?
1: Luke, I
0: would say it's, it's yeah. helpful. Okay. Snide remarks, and then here comes Alan. <laughs> Trigger warning. <laughs> he popped up. I do you know you were there? Are you taking a nap over there? <laughs> What's the class about? That was- <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but I have some thoughts. <laughs> so I think it's helpful to when you're talking about the religious right versus, say, neo-Calvinism.
1: What do they assume about the breadth and depth of discipleship in the surrounding cultures? Like the religious right assumes there is a great breadth of Christian discipleship, and the level of depth is not as material to the program. Yeah, that's the church's job. Yep, you know, not really
0: their job. And neo-Calvinism assumes there's never going to be a great breadth. Yeah, but they're very focused on depth. That's right. That and forming Christians in, to think Christianly about every area of life. Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. Thank you. Okay, back go back to sleep now. Okay, a couple of just emphases and what I would say are strengths of the transformationist movement as we think about how the script how they fit, what the scriptures tell us. A one emphasis, and I also think it's a strength, is that transformationists view, quote, "secular work." As a very important way to serve Jesus, so there is no sacred and sacred secular dichotomy for transformationists. Some of us might have grown up in churches where the the real you can obey God by like sharing the gospel with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and not lying or cheating. But you really obey God when you go be a foreign missionary, right? But if you're just like a businessman, you're like eh. Right? Does that make sense? Some of us grew up in that. That's what last week I called that pietism. That's a pietistic viewpoint. Transformationalists would say, no, uh, your work in the world is just as important as my work in the church. So there's a high view of the value of all kinds of vocations that you serve Jesus. And they would also say you can do kingdom work when you're a distinctively Christian Air Force pilot or a distinctively Christian engineer or a distinctively Christian salesman or a distinctively Christian painter. You're serving Jesus, and you're actually doing kingdom work in the world. So they, they want to flatten the dichotomy we often raise between church work and world work. Does that make sense? I think that's a strength. Remember last week, uh, Genesis 2, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. Take care of the garden and tend it. And we can open that up to mean anything in the world that makes this world a better place, that helps human beings thrive and flourish, is a good thing. So they would say there's a difference between church work, like what we're doing today. The church is gathered, and we're ministering and showing the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom of God through our gathered, collected worship and work. But we're also doing that tomorrow when all of y'all go out in the world, when you scatter and you live as Christians in your distinctive spheres. So there's gathered kingdom work and there's scattered kingdom work. And the transformation is, I think very much emphasize that, and I think that's a helpful emphasis. A second thing that transformationists emphasize is they celebrate excellence in work. Like, they think it brings God glory when you're really, really good at what you do, when you're a really good engineer, or when you're a really good pilot, or when you're a really good pastor, or when you're a really good army soldier. um, The more excellence you do in your work, The more of uh, influence you're probably going to have, and therefore the more of the kingdom you can bring, especially in places like the government, the arts, the media. Example: This week, here's an example. Um, There's a sports website, sports and media website that I like called The Ringer. Some of you might know The Ringer. Very, very secular work environment, secular place. Bill Simmons is the head of The Ringer. He's been a sports commentator, personality for years and years. There's a guy that worked for The Ringer. Named Jonathan Sharks, who was a about 35 year old, he wrote for the NBA. He wrote about the NBA for a living. He was a basketball journalist and uh, was really, really good at it. And became a Christian in his mid 20s. Was converted to Christianity, and um, was very open about his faith. He contracted a very rare form of cancer and died this past week. And uh, his death obviously was a big deal for. A lot of people but specifically for those that he worked closely with and so the ringer put out all this all this content a couple of podcasts one of which I listened to this week where they talked about his life and one of the things they said there was a whole section and this is again very worldly very secular there's a whole section on his faith and how his faith was compelling and interesting and he was the real deal as far as a Christian he would like share the gospel with people be hospitable and loving but but he was also like really good at what he did And that mattered. That gave him, you know, on a very pragmatic level, it gave him credibility. But it also, they they respected and admired him. A transformation would, would say he brought glory to God through being a Christian in a secular environment, doing really excellent work, and when given the opportunity, bearing witness to the power of Jesus. So transformationists celebrate excellence in work. And then another emphasis, last one. All transformationists believe that the big problem with culture is secularism that has disingenu- disingenuously demanded what is called a naked public square. What that means is we've probably all heard this that faith is something that you should keep to yourself. Faith should be privatized and it should have nothing to do with the public square. That is with policy decisions with um what stockholders think about what a company's doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all transformationists, I think, would rightly say that that is, at best, very disingenuous. And it's disingenuous because no one comes to the public square without some sort of faith. No one comes to the public square without significant assumptions about what this world is, about who God is if there is a God, about what's wrong with the world. So even non-Christians come into the public square with with some level of faith in something or someone. Transformationists say the problem is that Christian faith has been ostracized. You Christians keep your faith private. Don't you dare think that you can make any decision about the way this world should be based on your faith, which is naive because everyone makes decisions about the way this world should be based on their faith. Does that make sense? So transformationists all say that's a big problem, whether you're the religious right, whether you're a neo-Calvinist. Um, We should not privatize faith. Faith should influence and impact everything we do in the world. And it should influence and impact our public life together culturally. So those are three, I think, strengths. Secular work is important. Excellence in work is important. And the main problem with culture is this disingenuous and naive demand that Christians alone privatize their faith as as if no one else is doing the same thing. Um, so you guys can see, hopefully you can see my intent. I'm giving you a lot of information here, but I want you to see how transformationists think. They think we should be involved in the world. We should be engaged, not just in our little churchy stuff, but we should be engaged in every facet of society uh, for, for the greater good and also for the glory of God. And as we're engaged in every facet of society, they do have hope optimism that good things can happen, that this world will be a better place. And so a transformationist will always point to, and there are examples of this, the William Wilberforce's of the world, 19th century English statesman who was a Christian who was largely responsible for the end of the slave trade in in Great Britain. Um, The end of Roe v. Wade is a more recent example, which is undoubtedly good progress in culture And, you know, the story's still being written here, right? But there's no question that that's a very, very good thing for an unjust and evil law to be overturned. And that is a result, without question that's the result, of Christians working in different spheres of influence and having an impact. Does that make sense? So that's transformationalism. That's what they're all about. Questions? Thoughts? So would you say that
1: they have this viewpoint of that we're at we're in a battle the bible talks about being in a battle where to fight and that we to you know pursue
0: that change well the religious right without question uses that language all the time that we're in a battle we've got to take back culture i'm going to talk about that in just a second but yeah, there's There's a lot of emphasis. That whiteboard is just calling my name. I wish I could go right on it.
1: <laughs>
0: there's a, I would write this word if I was over there. Antithesis. The antithesis is highly emphasized. That is, there's a difference between the world and the church. The world is fallen and corrupt. And we need to go into the world and work for good because this world is lost otherwise. So yeah, there is... No matter who you are, transformationist-wise, whatever kind of sub-camp you fall into, that is a definite um, operating force, for sure. Jose? Yeah, I have a little conflict here. You mentioned that <clears throat> the transformationists believe we have a sphere of influence in of cultural society. We need to be the best we can everywhere we go. Yep. But then you also say that the uh have a big involvement in education. They have their own colleges. Yep. So shouldn't those students be at normal colleges influencing the other students instead of in their own little yeah. secluded college? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they would say both and. And there's probably a long historical narrative to that that I will tell you about over lunch sometime that I can't mm-hmm. tell you about right now. But yeah, I think that they would say, you know, if you're going to be excellent in your work, it's good for Christians to work in microchip development. But whatever the be- what's the best microchip company? Whatever that is, we want more Christians there. It's good for Christians to be in politics, but to have a Christian president is better, right? It's good for Christians to be working in media, but to have a media someone who is like does the what is good in media? I was going to say the NBC Nightly News, but no one ever watches that now. I don't know. Whatever is influential in media. So, there is that. Like it's good for Christians to be professors at Harvard, not just, you know, Saginaw Community College or whatever. And um, so they would definitely say that. But there's also, because they value education and whole world and life view, a lot of Christian colleges that they don't want to be isolationists. We're going to look at isolationists next week. But they want to train people with a Christian world and life view and then send them out into the world. Hillsdale, uh, Hillsdale College is a great example. That's where Nathan Emsley, oldest of the Emsleys, just went to Hillsdale. It's a wonderful, it's kind of a religious right institution but very explicit in their intent. They want to train people and then send them out into the world, specifically, usually, in sort of politics, lobbyist sort of world. So yeah, education. education. Other questions, Oliver? What would you say, like, the core first or scriptural passage would be for our transformation? Yeah, so last week, that Matthew 5, Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, I think that's one of the, without question, that's one of their core things. You should be out in the world, in the darkness being a light, being preserved of influence in the world, for sure. Yeah, And then they'll – you know, well, never mind. I could talk about that longer, but I'll stop. Okay, let me talk about a couple of weaknesses. I'm going to do this with every group, so don't get all mad if you're a transformationist. <laughs> Chill out, transformationists. You can transform me later. But for now, I do think these are weaknesses. That It's not just me. A lot of people have pointed these out. Okay, I've got four. There's probably more. One, an over-reliance on politics and I'm specifically referring here to the religious right. Um, I think it's very fair and almost self-evident to say at this point that the religious right as a movement overestimated the influence of politics as an institution. James Davison Hunter, I mentioned him last week, he's written a book called To Change the World, and he is a Christian social scientist at the University of Virginia, and Hunter argues that politics is downstream of culture that is what is it that is most significant in creating culture in our world it's not what happens in Washington DC it's what happens where locally, where everywhere, yeah locally but also like what what is the most why is gay marriage Hollywood. legal in America it's not because America the Supreme Court legalized it. that's not the reason so. the reason is because of Hollywood the reason, because uh, Will and Grace was a show in the nineties, twenty thirty. Who remembers Will and Grace? Uh, my references are getting older and older. Twenty five years ago, you know, Will and Grace. Friends. Friends is more influential than the White House when it comes to determining what culture is. Not when it comes to policy making, obviously. And that's Hunter's point. Hunter's point, of one of many, is that politics. Is not the engine that drives culture. Rather, it's downstream of the true sources of cultural change, which are the arts, the academy, cities, and now media companies. Jose, I think, Apple, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Those are like, those are what drive cultural change. And so the religious right has been overly reliant on politics as one sphere by which we'll get cultural change. And I think history is going to prove this, is proving this literally as we speak. Uh, Bush, I'm, I, you could argue with me on this, but you can't right now because I'm teaching. Uh, Bush, <laughs> in many ways, was like the crowning achievement of the religious right. Evangelical Christian, conservative values, former governor of Texas, woohoo, in the White House, eight years, <clears throat> and... Um, a lot of what was hoped for just did not happen. And that's not because of Bush. It's because politics does not have cultural sway to the degree that the religious right thought it did. So I think that has been a weakness in the transformationist model, is an over-reliance on politics. We still see that right now. I'll be quiet. (laughs) Secondly, uh, they don't recognize, this is very closely tied to the first one, transformationists often don't recognize the dangers of power. So remember I said, transformationists want you to be excellent at what you do. And the more power and influence you have in your particular sphere, the better that is. Does that make sense? What they failed to take into account is that often, uh, what does animal farm say? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that has certainly, I think, been evidenced in... uh, the idea of Christians trying to institute cultural change only by gaining power, say, as a political block. Um, because there's so many historical examples of when the church and the state become too closely wedded to one another, the church loses a large part of its vitality and dynamism. We're going to see that next week with the counterculturists even more so, but they talk about this idea. If you, if you ever start reading this literature. Constantinianism. That's another fun word. Constantine. Any of you kids remember Constantine? He was the Roman emperor who kind of legalized, he made Christianity the official state religion of Rome, 5th century. And baptized all the Roman army. What if one of those Romans was like, you know I think I'm going to still worship my household gods and Zeus. Constantine would say, okay, well we're going to chop your head off. And so, you know what? I'll be baptized after all. Jesus Christ is born. <laughs> And so that wedded the state and the church to a much more significant, significant degree. And so what a Constantinian person would say is that that produces lethargy and corruption and idolatry in the church. Makes sense? Now... I would argue that the religious right specifically has at times, not all the time, been guilty of not recognizing the dangers of power. This is also, I think, true with neo-Calvinists who think like if a guy becomes a CEO of Apple and he's a Christian, that that inherently is always only going to be good. (laughs) You actually even see this in the church, like when the church acts as a center of power. I mean, all these megachurch pastors, not just megachurch pastors, to to be fair, all these pastors in positions of power uh, falling into scandal is in part uh, not recognizing the dangers of power. So I think that has been a weakness in transformationalism. Miroslav Volf who's a Croatian theologian writes this, Christian communities should be more comfortable with being just one of many players so that from whatever place they find themselves on the margins, at the center, or anywhere in between, they can promote human flourishing and the common good. So I think, in my opinion, this is an area where Croatian Christians can teach American Christians. When they've never been anywhere near the center of power. In fact, they've been on on the margins. It's still possible to serve Jesus faithfully. And also, it's still possible to have an impact in the world. You don't have to be at the center of power. And I think often, transformationists have fallen into that trap. So there can be, this is not all the time, there can be an over-reliance on politics. There can be a failure to recognize the dangers of power. Two others, and then I'll open for discussion. There's often an underappreciation for the work of the church in transformationist circles. Does that make sense? Given what we've seen about transformationists, like this church is important, but what you go do in the world is also just as important and oftentimes even more important in a transformationist world. They get excited about Christian filmmakers and all this stuff Um, And, you know, there's this implication that the real action for the kingdom is outside of the church, uh, not the church itself. I think that's a weakness. And then the last one is that transformationists tend to be triumphalistic. Tend to. Not always, but they tend to be triumphalistic and they tend to be overconfident about just how much change can be instituted. Uh, And that's not me trying to be pessimistic, but... um, What I mean is that transformationalists often have a pride when they claim that the, you know, the Bible just doesn't give us a ton of details on economic policy. Just doesn't. Or on art or on politics. And it seems like transformationists have these detailed programs for how all this should happen in the modern world and they want to get it from the Bible. That can be a little bit overconfident. And even slogans like taking back the culture and winning the culture um, transforming culture can lead to expectations that Christians can bring about these sweeping massive changes I think Hunter's work is helpful is when he argues that all changes that Christians produce will be incremental not insignificant but incremental so when you think about creation, fall, redemption, restoration transformationists I think are good on creation this world is good God made the world good. He made us to have dominion and to go work in the world. Go. That's a good thing. They're also good on the fall. This world is fallen and corrupt. We need Christians in all spheres of the world working with a distinctive worldview. They're all pretty good on redemption, although they don't place much emphasis on that because they tend to underemphasize the church. And they're not very good, I don't think, on restoration. They have what we would call an overly realized eschatology. In other words, the kingdom of God is not going to be perfected until Jesus comes back. And sometimes transformationists can think this world can become the kingdom of God to a degree now that's probably not in line with what the scriptures teach. Peter and Hebrews argued that we are always, always, always going to be pilgrims. We're never going to feel at home in this world. We're waiting for our home to come when Jesus comes to make all things new. So transformationists tend to underemphasize that biblical storyline and overemphasize the take this world back storyline. Does that make sense? So I think that's one of the weaknesses of the transformationist model. So I know that's a lot of information. Uh, let me pause and just see if there's any questions or thoughts or areas of clarity I can bring. Is that clock right? Is it 9:45? they're not going to start without me we can just go late right (laughs) (laughs) any questions or thoughts well I think it seems like there's a bit of a leap maybe in logic or in reasoning from believing that we need to be the best writers at our job whatever it may be and actually believing that that will change or transform right (laughs) you can believe one without the other yes very easily that's true that's true um, so how do they get from one to the other? Well, they there get from one to the other. I was about to say the, the midpoint that you missed there, I think you're right. And I think they would agree. You can be great at what you do and not, therefore, have massive cultural power. Let's say we, we want you to be great at what you do in the centers of power. Um, it's great for you to be a professor and be a good professor. It's even better for you to be a professor who's really good at Yale. So well then, <laughs> no. then would they argue that being a good engineer, if you're not the CEO of your company, does that matter? They would say absolutely that matters. Yeah. They would say it matters, but there is sort of an inherent bias towards power, like I said, and a naivete around what power can and can't do. It would matter more if you're the lead engineer. That's right. And we, I mean, I think we can say that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to have Christians do that. But it might not do what they think it's going to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think they make that tiered level of influence in the same way Pietism does? Lady, missionary, you know, go up the same chain. It's It's kind of ironic. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. I think that's fair. And, um, I mean, yeah, I think that's fair. Good, that's a good comment. There's a tiered level of influence, just like pietists tend to say. Well, if you're not a missionary, you're not really that important in the kingdom. Transformationists can say, if you're not the CEO of your company, you know, or if you're not a teacher at Stanford, or you're at Yuma, you know, Yuma Junior College. Keep thinking of junior colleges. Um, yeah. So there is, I think, an inherent bias there that's probably not helpful. Yeah, Brooklyn. So how
1: would someone know when it's dangerous to seek that?
0: Hmm. that's a good question I'm probably not the right person to ask this this is an Enneagram 3 I always tend to think power is good Amanda Amanda, let's get another type of let's get a non-Enneagram 3 answering that what I'm
1: thinking is um, it's not a different question it's a similar question to what Brooke was talking about I'm thinking about how does God use power and who does he culture and scripture and i'm thinking about joseph yeah he pulled out of the pit and makes yeah so powerful thinking of david who's overlooked and nobody cares about him and no it's not all his brothers he's the baby and i mean you know so the lord sort of pulls people from obscurity and puts them in these places of power so i'm curious about this the the Maybe the arrogance of a transformationalist. Not yeah. that it's a bad thing. Yeah. Not that power, I mean, you can argue about the, the good and bad of power, but I think that the the arrogance of it is my power versus how is God using me to influence culture in my sphere. So so the focus rather on rather than on the person and their Um, giftedness and savviness and sway but how is God using them in their place and then it sort of is like he's going to do what he's going to do because the culture like he does have sovereignty
0: Yeah, I think that's good I think that requires just wisdom a lot of wisdom and a lot of being able to listen to others and one of the dangers is that we often think we're doing what God has called us to do when we're really just being arrogant (laughs) It's easy to stamp divine approval, self-stamp divine approval on your kingdom. Um, which I think transformationists are guilty of. Mm-hmm. But there's undoubtedly, there's transformationists love Daniel and they love Joseph. So the they don't love P- first Peter the, and they, the, they don't the love power Hebrews. Power is like the
1: of your heart?
0: Power is a key thing.
1: Your influence. It's yeah. great to have influence. And, and
0: next week cultures. we'll see when we look at the counterculturists <clears throat> next week. They're kind of the opposite of transformationists. Their main starting point is that power is corrosive, big time corrosive, and the church has to take that into account, and the transformationists have failed to do so, which is somewhat of a compelling starting point. So, come back next week <laughs> to hear about the counterculturists. <laughs> okay, uh, did someone else have a comment, David? Did you? No. Wait, what was our initial question again, oh, sorry. So I, have- I feel like we went around and almost got back. David, don't say that. I'm trying to, you know. You mean my first or second question? (laughs) Um, My second question
1: was, when is it dangerous to seek that kind of power? Or when do we know? Brooklyn, I don't have a hard and fast answer for you. But if you pull out what Amanda is saying from Scripture, right?